0: In Revelation chapter 13, John saw two beasts, one from the sea, one from the land, corresponding to the the empire, the Roman Empire, and its propaganda arm in the provinces, the, the provincial councils, and the local religious temples. And these two beasts, we were told, wage war on the church, even conquering it. And they impose the number of the beast on all their followers. So what John does today, and he's done this throughout Revelation, is he turns to the state of the faithful church. An image of the church's position, if you will, in the midst of her warfare. He's done this in previous Portions of the books, Uh, when he went through the seal judgments, when he went through the trumpet judgments, there were interludes. And in those interludes, John looks into the state of the church. That's what he's doing in this passage that we're looking at today from Revelation 14. And so we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there on the outline in the back inside page of your bulletin. Mount Zion, the new song, and the army. So first, Mount Zion. So there's a stark contrast. In in, in contrast to seeing the emergence of these two beasts, one from the sea, one from the land. Here John looks, and behold, on Mount Zion stands the Lamb. And so Zion here is a heavenly place. John is drawing here on Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was our Old Testament lesson this morning. And there you have this contrast between these raging kings of the earth and the lord who's installed his king his risen and ascended christ on zion so zion here is the heavenly temple city of the people of god and as such it's the place of our and the church's unassailable heavenly existence in christ you may have noticed this but it and it happens over and over in revelation When John looks out on the earth, he often sees the church trampled. When he looks out on the earth, he sees menacing things from the sea and from the land. But he always looks up to Zion, to heaven, where he sees the church glorious and secure. Back in chapter 11, he sees the church trampled in her outer estate, but utterly secure in the heavenly Zion. He's doing the same thing here. It's also important to see here a sort of twofold sense of this reference to Zion. First, Zion is the heavenly city in which the church, in which you now already dwell. Right? Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 makes this clear. It says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul says, you are raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So this is a present reality. And yet, as the city of God, as the new Jerusalem which shall in the future descend from heaven, John will show us this in chapter 21, Zion also points to this not yet, to this coming kingdom of God at the end of the age. So the church is already dwelling in Zion and at the same time awaiting Zion. Awaiting this glorious consummation. That's the tension in which we live. And so John looks and the first thing he sees on Mount Zion is the slain yet standing lamb. Slain yet standing means he's risen. And his resurrection unmasks the false resurrection of the empire, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. The empire received a mortal blow, and the empire seemed to be destined for collapse, but the empire was revived. The empire mimics the resurrection of Christ. John sees in the heavenly Zion the slain and the standing lamb, the one who's the true heir, the true claimant to the throne. The one who possesses universal dominion, not the empire, which pretends to universal dominion. And remember, the Psalm 2 background is very important here. This means this lamb is a divine warrior. From Mount Zion, he rules in the midst of the kings on the earth with a rod of iron. And he demands, his father demands, that the kings of the earth kiss or pay homage to the son who God has installed as his king over all kings. So this is who John sees. And this is the significance of it to the harassed and persecuted Christians in Asia Minor. And with the Lamb were the 144,000. Now we went over this at length, but it was over a year ago. Uh, but the 144,000 contended was represent the fullness of the church in all ages. It's a picture of the complete people of God. And the the short reason for that is this. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. The 12 Old Testament tribes, the 12 New Testament apostles, and 1,000 is the number of fullness and completion. And so the 144,000 are not some uh, subset or some special end time people. It's a symbolic way of, of John saying, when I see the lamb on Zion, I see the, the fullness of the church with him. Right? And the way this works in the book is, we were just told that the beast has his own propaganda arm. Remember we saw this last week, there was a second beast from the land, also known as the false prophet. Well, the risen lamb has his propaganda arm in the church the company of true prophets. So that's who John sees. That's who's with him. And you'll remember the beast followers were marked with his name, with the number 666. So here the lamb's followers have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You have the name of this lamb imprinted on your being if you are baptized into the name of this Christ and you have the name of his father and this name indicates that you and that all the saints are owned by God protected by God and the lamb this is equivalent to the seal which was placed on the same company of 144,000 all the way back in chapter 7 it's your baptismal seal that's the company That are with the Lamb on Mount Zion. So, the second second thing to notice here is the new song. John hears a voice. It's the voice, it's it's much like the voice of the transfigured Christ in, in chapter one, the risen and exalted Christ in chapter one. And it's much like the voice of the redeemed multitudes later in chapter 19. It's it's a thunderous voice, like the roar of rushing waters and the sound of loud thunder. Christ's voice was that way in chapter 1. The redeemed multitude of the saints at the wedding supper of the Lamb, that's what their voices sound like. This voice, in all of its thunderous volume, its amplitude, it, it celebrates Christ's presence and his coming victory on behalf of his people. That's why it's loud. That's why it fills up all space. The redeemed will come. The prophet Isaiah says, the redeemed of the Lord will come to Mount Zion. And everlasting joy will be on their heads. And here we're told that not only that, but the name of the Lamb and the name of His Father will also be on their heads. So there's this Thunderous, exuberant volume in heaven. But the voice also has a kind of majesty, a kind of sweetness about it. It's, it's the sound of harpists, the text says, playing on their harps. They're uh, singing, verse 3, tells us a new song in praise of response to the Lamb's victory to his victory, and thus your victory, over the beasts. The beasts trample. And while the beasts are trampling, they are adding to the heavenly choir, which is expanding and singing. So try and place yourself back in Asia Minor. And you're in, you're in a small you know, church, which is being harassed. You may have had members who've been arrested. You have economic hardship because you cannot confess the name of Christ and burn a little incense to the emperor. So that means you can't participate in the trade guilds. You've lost all your political and social capital. Some of you have been killed. And John the prophet says to you, put your eyes on Mount Zion and there you will see an expanding, thunderous, triumphant choir that's what he's doing for the churches he's reorienting them so that they can look at reality aright this is the same song then that's sung in the heavenly liturgy in chapter five around the throne and so when God acts in new and dramatic ways as he has done in Christ this demands new songs And so we are to sing. We're to sing loud, like roaring waters and thunder, and sweet, like harpists. No one can learn this song, the text tells us. No one except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Redeemed means liberated, and liberated men and women sing. They sing. The followers of the beast do not sing. They groan. They create no hymn books. So we sing. And the third point is the army. You might notice this in your outline. I have three sub points under the third point virgins, followers, and first fruits. So, Under this third point, I want to talk first about virgins. It says, it is these, the 144,000 who have not defiled themselves with women. Literally, for they are virgins. The NIV says they kept themselves pure. But the the text speaks of their virginity. And And the text has been misread historically. This is not a company, a select company of celibate males that's in view here. And hopefully by now we know why. The reason is that the 144,000 is a symbolic way of representing the whole company of the redeemed. I'll review this for a moment. We went. If you go back to chapter 7, there we saw that the church was numbered as 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that. Totaling 144,000. And what we said there was that the way that numbering happens in chapter 7, it means that a census is being taken. And a census is being taken because the church is being depicted as an army arrayed for holy war. This is the deepest Old Testament rationale as to why 144,000 cannot be some future subset of people or some pure this or pure that. It's the whole church numbered as a census arrayed for holy war. And, when the church, when, and you're in this company. And the law requires, the Torah, among other things, sexual abstinence during a time of holy war. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 23, 1 Samuel 23. And so what, what you have here is the whole church depicted as an undefiled company arrayed for holy war. The whole church in the Old Testament is called the Virgin of Israel or the Virgin Daughter of Israel. This is common language. And so that's what John is talking. He's talking to us in our purity before Christ. And the more immediate background here is the immorality or the defilement by which the whore of Babylon, centered in the city of Rome, seduces the nations. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know it this way. Just two verses after our text, Lord willing, we'll see this next week. Two verses after this, in Revelation 14, John says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so the defilement here is idolatry and compromise with the beast and its harlot. So this is the holy army bride of the Lord. So the second thing I want to say about this army is followers. The middle of verse 4 says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. This is a simple depiction of Christian discipleship. And and it's the repeated call of Jesus to us. Follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And It's incumbent upon all the redeemed. You're redeemed, you're in the company, you sing, now you follow. And its radical nature can often be blunted because we're over- Familiar with it. But it cost the early church in its battle with the beast. These churches in Asia Minor have no middle ground coming upon them. They they are going to have no place where they can be a nominal Christian. Or a cultural Christian. Or a compromised Christian. They are going to be a faithful Christian. And in many cases, dead Christians. And so this call to follow means to, to follow him into the teeth of the empire's wrath with faithfulness. Right, throughout the book of Revelation we follow the Lamb dressed in these white, virginally pure garments. So the third thing I want to say about this army is first fruits. The second half of verse 5 says these have been redeemed or purchased from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now a question has sometimes arisen here. The redeemed are the 144,000. They're the whole company of the church. So why are they called first fruits? First Firstfruits are usually a part of a greater whole. Well, here we should note that in, the, in a number of places, for example, in Jeremiah, in the book of James, the whole of Israel and the church can be referred to as first fruits. But more importantly is what I mentioned earlier. The 144,000 represent the whole church in Zion. But as we saw, they also anticipate the coming final redemption of the church. Right? The 144,000 are in Zion now and they represent the coming fullness of Zion. And this by the way is and we'll see this later. This is why The final redemption of the church. If you look at the New Jerusalem descending from heaven at the end of Revelation, all of the dimensions there are described in 12s and 1000s and 144s. The depiction of the New Jerusalem, sometimes you'll find someone who measures the New Jerusalem in chapter 21 and figures out that it'll fit on this much of America and it'll be this high and it'll cover this many states. That's a wholly misguided enterprise. Right. The, the, uh, the New Jerusalem is described in 12s and 1000s and 144s. All of its dimensions are variants of that because it is the full dwelling place of God with the fullness of his people. And so the final coming glorious church is also the company of the 144,000. And it's, it's in their anticipatory function now the church now pointing to the church then that they can be called the firstfruits. I want to say two more quick things about the nature of the church as this firstfruits. Firstfruits is a sacrificial word. Right, you see this worked out in verse 5. In their mouths no lie was found. Now that's a simple statement. It's easy to go past it. But it's a simple statement which resonates very deeply with the richest themes of the whole book of Revelation. The mouth is mentioned here as the line of demarcation between the followers of the beast and the saints. The mouth of the dragon pours forth, we're told, a river of lies, seeking to destroy the church. People lie. Institutions lie. Politicians lie. Churches lie. Newspapers lie. There's a river of lies. The first beast is given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words against God and his church. And the second beast is a false prophet, a lying, deceitful propaganda arm of the empire. And at the end of the book, chapter 21 tells us twice, not once, but twice, that liars have a special place in the lake of fire. And so the point here, of course, includes the idea... That truthfulness in speech is always required of us. But more basically, when John says the first fruits had no lie in their mouths, he is saying that, like the Lamb, they were faithful witnesses. They spoke truthfully, they witnessed to the gospel properly. They live and speak the truth in the face of the beast and his propaganda. They are the true prophet in contrast to the second beast, who's the false prophet. And if you follow the lamb wherever he goes, the lamb who's now installed on Zion, what does Isaiah tell us in chapter 53 about this lamb? He says he had no deceit in his mouth. For Jesus, truth-telling meant slaughter. And the same relation holds for the saints in Asia Minor... And it holds for many of our brethren today. Truth-telling means slaughter. Second thing to notice about the first fruits, you see this at the end of verse 5, it says they're blameless. Again, this is not a casual remark just tacked on. Because this is sacrificial language and the context has a rich sacrificial aura about it. The sacrifices of the Old Testament had to be blameless and spotless and innocent, just like the lamb himself. And redeemed by that lamb, we are to become blameless sacrifices, living sacrifices. Not perfect, but unseduced by the beast and his agents. Separated from the immorality and the idolatry of the Babylonian harlot. To be blameless is to be offered up. As a sacrifice. This company is offered up. And so, this short passage in Revelation 14 is a direct, I think, and a pressing challenge to the modern church. It's often very difficult to translate Revelation into our modern context. But this is one of the places where I think it's relatively easy. And so I'm going to summarize the ethical call this, this passage places on us. And I'm going to do this with uh, five points. I'm going to make five practical applications, if you will. They all overlap. So, you're redeemed by this lamb. And you're in this company. You're in the 144,000. You have the seal of his name and his father's name on you. And that means you're called to these five concrete things. First, we are to sing. This is first. We are to sing loud, roaring, thunderously, and sweetly. Redeemed men and women sing, all of them. They open their mouths and they make noise. That is a sign of liberation from slavery. And where it's absent, the underlying redemptive act of God is muted. Secondly, this is a text which calls us to be a people of continual repentance. Calvin said the Christian life is a life of continual turning and repenting, a continual repentance from our defilement. We have to flee the sensuality and the corruption and the idolatry of the culture. We are not purely negative. There's much to enjoy about the culture and life. But there are large swaths of it that we cannot come to terms with in its current state. And we must not live with divided hearts because you are the Lord's holy army, his virginal bride. And you have to keep those robes pure and white. And this means third, that moment by moment we have to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And following meets resistance. And we have mortal enemies within and we have mortal enemies without. And the call of the gospel, the call of sanctity, is a costly call. So the status quo in our spiritual lives is not acceptable for us. Following means moving, following means motion, motion means resistance. It means, if anything, at the the least, it means resisting our own inertia, resisting drift. We have to be much more careful. Pay attention to what you've heard, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, lest you drift. Drift is a great threat to American Christians. People drift 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, they don't even know they drifted. They have no idea how far from shore they are. They think they're still right in the exact right spot. This is a joyful thing, Because God wants you to be happy, but that happiness is on the far side of holiness. We think we can achieve happiness some other way than the way of the cross. And sometimes we waste decades doing this. This following, this resistance, is the way to blessedness. Fourth, it means we have to be truth-telling people. Faithful witnesses at all costs laying aside falsehood, speaking the truth in love in its undiluted purity. Corrupt speech corrupts our witness. And so to summarize this, fifth, if you will, we have to be blameless. Not perfect, but living, holy sacrifices in union with the risen, sacrificed lamb. And we're confident that we can, we're confident that we shall do this, that we shall walk in this way because this Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. He's the firstborn from the dead, the firstfruits of the harvest. And you stand in and with Him. You have His name and His Father's name on your being. And He has given you the firstfruits of His Spirit. And He who has begun a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.